0: We were also, in fact, invited to China as early as in 1981. They had a Ministry for Uranium Exploration with 50,000 employed people. and I was thinking of our small uranium exploration unit in the survey with two people at that time. (laughs) And our vast country to cover, Greenland.
1: (laughs) Welcome to Polar Podcasts where you'll hear stories from geologists who've spent their careers, their lives, exploring and studying the remarkable and remote geology of Greenland. Why did they become fascinated with Greenland? What were the problems and the discoveries that drove them? And what was it like working in these remote places, where few people venture, even now? I'm Julie Holtz. In this episode, we hear from Alnita Steenfeldt. Emeritus Senior Scientist at the Geological Survey of Denmark and Greenland, about how she started out with the Geological Survey of Greenland in 1972, exploring for uranium, the beginnings of what would become a career that brought modern geochemical mapping and exploration to Greenland.
0: I would like to start with my engagement with the Geological Survey of Greenland, which was in December of 1972, and I had my first field season in East Greenland in the summer of uh, 1973. I um, was very excited because working in Greenland was really my dream job. When I studied, I was very interested in Greenland geology and I so wanted to be part of the team studying Greenland. And then the opportunity came that when Denmark joined the European Economic Community in 1972. The community allocated money to perform uranium exploration in member countries because they wanted to secure the fuel for what they thought would be a nuclear power program for Europe. Well, it didn't end up like that, but anyway, some of that money was allocated to the survey and um, they could afford to employ some people to carry out uranium exploration in Greenland. And I was one of them, which I was very pleased with because they had a rumor for not employing female geologists at the time because working in Greenland was considered a very tough job only for boys or for men. But I, I had some field experience in Greenland from when I studied already.
1: Arnita had completed her PhD working with the Geological Survey in South Greenland. So um, the people who engaged me knew that I was able to perform field work.
0: And then um, I was setting foot at Mestersvig Airfield.
1: Mestersvig Airfield is a gravel airstrip in East Greenland that had previously served the Mestersvig Lead Zinc Mine. We were brought up from Iceland,
0: and I was so impressed. It was overwhelming. I mean, this landscape, the snow, the air, the everything was very, very impressive and, and uh, quite different from what I'd experienced in South Greenland. I was transported to the field camp we had, uh, 100 kilometers north of Mestarsví, out in the non- non-inhabited areas, and we had this Icelandic, airplane, fixed-wing airplane, that we should use for our survey, because when you start uranium exploration in an unknown area, and I mean, there wasn't any known uranium occurrences in East Greenland, so we just started with this large white area where we needed to use a method whereby we could get some some overview of the variation in uranium. And one of the ways you could do that is that you can measure the um, gamma radiation emitted from uh, uranium, thorium, potassium. You can record that from the air and then you can cover large areas by flying over it, recording the gamma radiation as you go along. And... Um, This you can do with a gamma spectrometer, which you can afterwards analyze the signal you obtain and calculate the contribution from uranium and from thorium and from potassium. And then you can find where you have radiation emitted from uranium enrichments in the rocks. And the way to do this was to um, fly along the fjords, I mean normally in... surveying with an airplane you prefer to go in straight lines north south for example or east west depending on the character of the landscape and the geology but this landscape in northern East greenland that is so mountainous so you need to follow the fjords and the valleys fly along there sort of midways between the glacier underneath and can you imagine that you're flying there above a glacier and you have this marvelous view of the mountain slopes, the rock faces there, and you just fly along all these valleys. I mean, what an introduction to geology. You could see the fold structures in the cliffs, and you could see the change from rock types, and this is a geologically very variable area where you were going from cysts, to granites, to gneisses, to mafic rocks. And you could see all that from the air because there's so little vegetation in in that area. I was given the job in some of these flights as navigator, meaning I was sitting next to the pilot and pointing to him where we should go. And I had a geological map in my lap and I was following the route we had taken on that map to determine where the radiation came from. We had the instrument in the back of the plane and I had a field assistant there and he would be um, marking on the analog recording. I mean, this is from days where you didn't have digital recording and everything was recorded on paper strips that, and with a needle, like a seismograph where the needle would move according to the radiation obtained on a piece of paper that was drawn along. And then to relate the point where you were i mean the location in space or on the map you had to talk into a tape recorder and then also tell your field assistants now we are at fiducial point number so and so and he would write that on the paper tape that was rolling along
1: and i was
0: then commenting Every time we passed a geological boundary I could see, or any other landmark, I would say that to the tape recorder, so we had a time control on when we passed this boundary, or this valley, or this fjord, or when we were turning the plane. A day was four to five hours of flying time, (laughs) and we landed. And then, of course, we had to control that all the points were agreeing. And then I had to write a written record of everything I had said to the tape recorder. So it was another four or five hours to do this. But also it gave you a reminder of what you had actually seen. We also measured... By an ultimator, we measured the height above ground, and there was a camera installed in the plane that continuously took photos of the overflown ground so that we could use that if we had an anomaly, a high radiation for uranium, which we found out afterwards, we could go back to that area and find out on the photos what the ground looked like, so we could use that to go back and find out what was radiation due to. And with hand-borne instruments... Find this place again. I was not alone in this. I mean, we were two or three geologists taking care of this, together with the technicians from a research laboratory in Denmark who had specialized in the measurement of gamma radiation. There was not so much experience in Greenland when I started working with the survey. So I was very pleased. There was money in the project to um, go to meetings where you would meet European and also Canadian and American specialists in uranium exploration. And later on, I've also participated in many meetings in in mineral exploration for other elements. Getting input and getting to know these people is very important. I remember one of the first experiences I had with this was because of the uranium exploration and the cooperation on this Between the European countries, that I was invited to meetings in Vienna in the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, we were invited to visit various uranium prospects in Europe. There are some in Italy, there are some in France. These are uranium occurrences we could visit and see and we could learn about how you can look at the rocks in there and find the traces of uranium and how much radiation did they emit so you can p- compare with what we had in Greenland and find out what was the significance of what we were looking at in Greenland because we were uncertain about this. We were also, in fact, this group of European uranium exploration experts, so to speak, invited to China. As early as in 1981, where China was still under the commandment of Chairman Mao and where all the Chinese people wore blue suits and these famous shoes that we in Denmark would call Mao shoes because they were were used in Denmark as uh, very, very cheap indoor shoes and it was it was so amazing to see these people and we were invited to places in the countryside in china to have a look at some of the what they thought were uranium prospects and some of these people had never seen european people before in those days i mean in 80 81 they had a ministry for uranium exploration with 50,000 employed people. And I was thinking of of our small uranium exploration unit in the survey with two people at that time. (laughs) And our vast country to cover, Greenland. (laughs) Well, China is also a vast country, but at least they had people to do it. And the reason, of course, was that the labor cost was no issue in China in those days. So they had all these 50,000 employed and one spectrometer.
1: I'm Julie Hollis, and you've been listening to Polar Podcasts. In the next episode, we hear more from Emeritus Professor Kent Brooks about the next phase in the story of the Scareguard intrusion, discovering gold.